Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to Rice for Breakfast, a podcast about Asian Americans and pop culture. The Emmys are coming up next Monday, and so I'd like to give another congratulations to Sandra Oh, who was nominated for Best Actress in a Drama Series and is the first woman of Asian descent to ever earn that honor. The New York Times published a small interview with her when the nominations were first announced, and I love this quote, so I wanted to read it here uh, in regards to her nomination. She says, you know what? Let's celebrate it, man. I'm serious. Just celebrate it. It's like we've got to start somewhere, and I'm happy to get that ball rolling because what I hope happens is that next year and the next year and the next year, we will have presence. And the presence will not only go to Asian Americans, you know, from yellow to brown, but to all our other brothers and sisters, our First Nation brothers and sisters, our sisters and brothers of different sizes and different shapes. If I can be a part of that change, then yeah, let's celebrate it. Uh, I love that quote in particular because it acknowledges that change of representation comes in steps. So let's celebrate this nomination and, and keep the progress moving forward. Um, you know, a lot of the, the criticism and feedback I saw regarding Crazy Rich Asians was that it didn't represent every Asian story. And that's not the point. Um, the point is that, again, it's represent- representation and it's a step forward in uh, progress in Hollywood and entertainment. So, again, I, I, I did appreciate that quote that Sandra O oh gave. So good luck to her uh, on Monday. This week's guest is Broti Gupta, an LA-based comedian who shows her writing talents all across the board. She writes for TV for Speechless on ABC, Friends from College on Netflix. She has even written for print in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Washington Post, and more. And she does stand-up comedy uh, in LA as well. We talk about what it was like growing up as a brown girl in Kentucky pre and post 9-11, what it's like to tell your immigrant parents that you want to become a stand-up comedian. Uh, and then we spend a lot of time about the complexities of dealing with politics and world events as a comedian on Twitter and the Me Too movement in the comedy scene. Uh, Broti gives great, great insights into the inner workings of the comedy world that I love. And I think everyone will enjoy the episode. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @ricebreakfast. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash riceforbreakfastpod. And you can go to riceforbreakfast.com for more ways to listen. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, eat your rice for breakfast. Broti, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining me on a Saturday morning. I know I'm glad we were able to find some time to chat. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, Do you have any fun plans this weekend? Um, No, but I am planning on sleeping during like a single digit p.m that's good that's good that's always the way to do it just take a quick power nap yep (laughs) um i saw obviously i was looking through your instagrams it looks like you had some uh some stand-up bits a couple days ago right this one looked particularly interesting the uh 50 comedians in performance take one minute each to go off on culture Yeah. yeah 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 i did that it was super fun nice so what was that about so that is, I don't know if you know, um, Bowen Yang and Matt Rogers are New York comedians, and they have a podcast called Los Culturistas, um, and they do a live show um, that's like that features part of their podcast, which is called I Don't Think So, Honey, which is you just rant about something for an hour, or they give you a topic to rant about for. No, did I say an hour? Yeah, you did. A minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I took the full hour to do it. Yeah, you were they the only were not performer. Happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're amazing. They're so funny, and yeah, so they have this this live show that they do, where they feature fifty comedians, and we all, uh, we all rant about something either pre-selected or that they select for us from the Troll Bowl. That's uh-huh. what it's called. It's a good name. Um, yeah, it's a super good name. Um, and then we rant for a minute. Nice. Um, what was your topic? So I decided to go for the troll bowl because... Oh, okay. Very bold. Yeah. By the time it came to me, I felt brave. <laughs> um, so I ranted about Emily Blunt. Oh, what was it? What was the gist? I guess it's a minute. So what was it? Uh, so the gist was basically because like the... So the troll bowl is filled with things that are very good. That's like that are hard to rant about. Yeah, okay, that's what I was going to say. Emily Blunt, I mean, she's... What can I know, you say? hard to rant about her. <laughs> so I just, you know, I blamed her for not having a late night show after Into the Woods. And 
That's fair. For giving that, yeah, thank you so much. And for giving that to uh, her on-screen husband, mm-hmm. James Corden. <laughs> that's fair. I think that that's a good criticism. Uh, did you watch you. A Quiet Place by chance? No, no, I did not. I'm bad with horror movies. Okay, okay. So yeah, if you're bad with horror movies, maybe not. But I thought she was so, so good at it. Yeah, uh, that's what I heard. Yeah, and pretty cool she gets to work... Um, she just gets to make movies with her husband also that's convenient in every way possible <laughs> yeah that was another i also blamed her for not being pan from the office that is very very legitimate i lo- i've seen that show every episode that sh- or sorry maybe the first six ep- seasons every episode like i countless countless amount of times oh uh, yeah are you a big fan yeah, of it that's a, that's a show that you can watch over and over again. yeah it's just you're doing chores around the house you put it on and you have it in the background and quote whatever Michael is about to say or do and it's great every time exactly (laughs) um so so uh speaking of tv shows and writing so you are a tv writer um can you what do you work on what do you do so I uh am right now at the show Speechless on ABC Mm -hmm. and I was uh before this job I was working for Friends from College on Netflix Mm -hmm. and uh how did you did you always want to be a writer from when you were younger or is this something that happened upon you? Um, in so college this is, stuff? Yeah, this is something that sort of happened during college. I kind of like every other brown person I know, honestly, I started off college pre-med <laughs> and uh, I really hated it. And I was like, I will probably save more lives not doing this. And so <laughs> a year uh, a year into college, I was sort of, I, when you go to college, you never really feel like you will be doing the thing that you're majoring in or the thing that you're studying. You know, you still sort of feel like this is all school, you know? Yep. Um, and so then it like really dawned on me in a very like violent way <laughs> that... <laughs> I was going to be potentially doing the thing that I was studying. And so I was like, <laughs> what is it that I like doing? Yeah. And then I, I and then I thought about, well, I like to be funny. Whether I am is not up to anyone else. But I was like, I like to be funny and I, I like writing. Um, and so then I dove head fucking first into it. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Did you, was there... At the time, was there any particular comedians who inspired you or writers who inspired you in college? Or was it something where um, you've kind of been keeping tabs since you were younger and now you have all these resources you can finally use? Yeah, so I was like, I think something that really made me feel like, oh, I could do this um, was I think first reading an essay by, or a book of essays by Nora Ephron. Um, because she just has like such a wonderful way of writing that's so conversational and it's so funny and it feels so natural and like it makes you feel like you can do it, which is very like what a what a testament to good writing, you know, but also very, very wrong some of the time. <laughs> so I was immediately like, oh, I can do this, um, but I could not. And it took you know, so my second year of college, I sort of like told my parents, I was like, you know, I don't want to do pre-med anymore. I want to be a comedy writer. So what, Which, how do you, yeah, how did that go? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, it's so like, and it should have gone this way. What a terrible thing to say to your sweet parents who worked so hard <laughs> to get right. you to where you are to be like, I want to be a comedy writer. Mm-hmm. That's just mean on my <laughs> end. <laughs> like of and all were... things, right? The complete polar opposite of. Yeah. yeah, the complete polar opposite. And also like they were like, we're we want to like retire at some point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they were also like very rightfully like they were like that's not that's like some third generation immigrant behavior (laughs) and are you are you first second i'm second generation so like my parents moved out here well i guess i'm technically first generation. yeah you know that's always like complicated because i'm first generation born in the states but my parents moved out here also so i always get confused on the exact logistics of those yeah 
So I think I actually, I think I am first generation because I was not born a citizen of the U.S. Oh, you weren't even. Okay, yeah. So no, I was born in England. Oh, nice. And then <laughs> yeah. When did you move out here? So uh, moved out here when I was like one. Um, I don't, I don't know if you were wondering about the very strong British accent I have. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, once we started speaking, I had to pinpoint which tube station you got off. So. Yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was like. I was like one or something. I was a baby. Um, and that's when we moved to the States. Um, yeah. And so anyway, my parents were like, that is some um, third generation behavior out of you. <laughs> and I was like, fair. Um, and so I kind of like, what I did was I spent that year. So my second year of college, I spent just like, I was my, um, my compromise with my parents was that I would continue doing pre-med and then do this on the side um, and just see which one takes off. (laughs) Um, And so I was like, every single day I would do all of my homework. I would do everything for, you know, my biology, chemistry classes. Um, And then I would spend four hours a day writing. So I'd spend four hours sitting on like the top floor of my college library until the library closed, just writing jokes and writing terrible comedy. (laughs) Just like awful. That's awesome. I like, I love, love standup comedy um, and obviously just comedians, but I, and so I've been, there's been like a rise of standup comedy documentaries lately. Um, Yeah. You know, especially what comes to mind is Judd Apatow. He did the um, shoot on HBO uh Gary Shandling documentary oh, yeah. <clears throat> and Jerry Seinfeld had a documentary on Netflix too um it's so fascinating to watch people comedians like work through their process so uh and every comedian says their first however many books of jokes are just so so bad uh, so what was your process like when you're trying to do that so when i was trying to uh when i was trying to write initially I would just, I would read a lot. So I would read a lot of just like shouts and murmurs pieces and McSweeney's pieces. And I would kind of try to emulate those. But it it was like, I mean, now if I read them back, it kind of seems like, you know how sometimes you can teach a bot like (laughs) certain algorithms, like that's what it feels like. But none of the words come together to be funny. (laughs) Sure. Um, So it's like you have the formula of X, Y, and Z, but it's not making a joke yeah it's not it's not making a a whole lot of sense Mm. um but uh yeah it wasn't until you know I got those what is it like 10,000 hours or something like that yeah the masters um doing practicing anything for 10,000 hours and you get become good at something or master at something right yeah 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 but like, let's downgrade from master. <laughs> um, so I put in, I put in the 10,000 hours. Um, and I was, you know, it was, I was really like upon reflection, I'm really glad that things kind of shook out the way that they did. I'm kind of glad that I didn't immediately have my parents approval because that pushed me so hard to just work my ass off during those first few years. Um, And then I, you know, from there, I was writing for uh, College Humor. They started accepting my pieces for online. And then I also did like a, I won a sketch competition at Second City in Chicago, which was like for anyone who had taken a class at Second City. Um, And so it was like, this was starting to sort of seem like a viable career thing because I had also technically made more money I'd made like $25 doing comedy by then (laughs) which is like if we're kind of looking at you know just like the amounts that I would make in the next few years doing pre-med that's like negative like $500,000 right right yeah you don't have uh student loans for comedy right Exactly. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so then, so it was just kind of like 
putting in those those 10,000 hours and it was you know practicing a lot and I I like did an internship at College Humor which involved a, a lot of writing um and then I did an internship at Above Average which also involved a lot of writing and it was like that was sort of my college experience was I did college but I also was doing this comedy thing in like a much more legitimate way did you um, did you join any of like the comedy groups uh i'm sorry where'd you go to school well wellesley right yeah i went to wellesley great um did you join any of like the improv groups or was there like a comedy paper or blog or anything like that at your school yeah so i joined an improv group called dead serious um and that was super fun i'm like not i'm not great at improv but it was very fun to be on this and it and it was also just like you know it was being with people who were interested in comedy in the same capacity that I was so just kind of like not feeling isolated or not you know it was just a, it was a lot of solidarity on that end and what were uh what kind of drew you to the group were there other opportunities or you just wanted to try improv and you just said you weren't that good at it was it something you just wanted to hone your craft on a little bit more or you saw them live and you thought it was great was there anything as opposed to doing things like youtube comedy or uh you know video comedy things like that yeah i mean a lot of it was that you know it was one of like the only comedy outlets on campus so that was like that was my main sort of drive for it because i i mean out here in la i don't really do a ton of improv well i don't do any improv okay <laughs> it's like very gracious of me to be like i don't do a ton of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i don't do any improv got it um and what was it like when you first started performing um improv in college was i, I imagine horrifying yeah i mean it's obviously like very horrifying and you kind of have to like build a sense of immense trust in your teammates that they won't let you that they won't just like I don't know leave you hanging in a scene um so it was terrifying but it was super fun and I loved I loved doing it when I was in college out here I didn't again I didn't really decide to get involved in it out here I do stand up okay and when did you start to practice uh stand up or realize that's where kind of the path you wanted to lean towards in addition to writing so it was actually that i got invited to do a set for a show called um well it was a show that was hosted by reductress so i was like asked to do a set there and then i so then i wrote it and it was terrifying like the entire day leading up to that performance I had like several like my stomach wasn't ulcer (laughs) um but it was so so fun because that was like ultimately kind of tying everything that I wanted to do together which was that I you know I wanted to perform but I also wanted to be writing you know I wanted to I wanted comedy to be like a part of like the pre-planned thing you know right So it was, I mean, it was just so fun and it was like, it was just a a really transformative experience. I don't do stand up nearly as much as I should, but Uh I, that is the thing that I tend to do more of. Right. Right. Um, so when you were in college, did your parents ever come watch you do improv? No. Cause I went, I mean, they were all the way out in Kentucky. Oh, okay. So yeah, they were very far away. Yeah. They were very far away. And did you grow up in Kentucky then? Yeah, I grew up in Kentucky. Nice. Uh, for once you moved from England, you went straight there? Um, so we actually, from England, it was Chicago and then Boston and then Kentucky. Oh, wow. So kind of all over the, or all over yeah, the place. Yeah, you know, the three main places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was all it, equal. What was it like growing up in Kentucky or it spending was... time there? So it was super fun when I was very little, uh-huh. and then nine eleven happened. Okay, and it was less fun. Yeah, the, I can I can imagine that. Uh, do you remember where you were when um, you found out about nine eleven and all that stuff? 
Yeah, I was, so I was in second grade, which is kind of like a backdoor brag about how young I am. Yeah, I'm, I was just thinking in my head, I was in second grade, so, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I yeah, I, I remember that it was because, you know, when you're a kid at that age, you kind of just spit out everything that your parents say, right? Right, so of course, like, yeah. You know, there were kids who their parents maybe told them that they didn't, that they shouldn't be around me they shouldn't hang out with me mm-hmm. and it was kind of it was interesting because it was like i don't know we were in school that day you know i didn't cause it <laughs> <laughs> right um and did your parents talk to you about that at all yeah i mean you know they they sort of did they did and they didn't so i i mean in my house it was just kind of like we didn't sit down to have a conversation about it but it was very much like oh that's not like you know that's just you have to ignore that there's there's nothing that you can do to like change people's very i don't know foundational beliefs but you can just you know delegitimize them by ignoring them and so it was that but you know there was also like my parents love this country my parents love America so much. And so it was, it was actually a lot of just, so my sister, who's four years older than I am, she and I, we sort of talk about this all the time, which is that, you know, we are much more sensitive to racism in the U.S. than my parents are. Um, And I think the reason is that, you know, my parents, they love this country and they're so, they're so grateful to this country that they will kind of they still I don't know and maybe they'll listen to this and be like come on but, um, <laughs> we're not that grateful <laughs> yeah exactly but you know I think that they sort of still feel a little bit like a guest in this country whereas like my sister and I we grew up here and so we're like that no, we're not this is how we are being treated at home why are we being treated like this at home um so I think that that kind of differs with my sister and I and with my parents. Mm. Um, did your did your experience grow up at all when you went to high school and people got a little older and um, sort of so more return aware? Actually, I went to a high school that was uh, very like academically rigorous, and it was it was a a great high school for the most part. It was you know I got I my best friend from high school is still my very best friend that's to this awesome day. that is very but, cool you know it, it was a school where racism not only was not talked about but it was just sort of assumed that everyone was too smart to be racist right mm, which is so always then, the mistake <laughs> yeah which is a huge mistake because right. and i don't mean to spoil it for you <laughs> They were, in fact, racist still. <laughs> you know, I had yeah. I had a lot of experiences where, you know, there was one time there was a girl who asked me to, like, hold her stuff while she went to the bathroom or something. And then she was like, I don't mean to make you a stereotype. And I guess after a lot of reflection, I was like, oh, the stereotype would have been that I was her servant. Oh, I I didn't even. I was literally thinking no, about. No, yeah, I, okay. I needed. I also. I needed it clarified for <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Because I was like, well, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I know largely most of the Indian stereotypes, but I didn't know <laughs> holding a bag was one of them. Like that's just a thing that you do sometimes. That's just keeping the bag off of the ground. Right, stereotype of a nice person, I suppose. Yeah, sure. exactly. So right. it was, you know, it was things like that where it was a lot of like, quote unquote, joking racism. But it was still racism. And, you know, there was that belief that we were all too smart to be racist, which is, again, simply not the case. Uh, Do you think any of your interactions growing up, did that make you want to, do you think that helped you want to be a comedian? Did that help you look at comedy in a different way? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no, there are very few people who are like, I grew up trauma-free. Let's get into comedy. <laughs> That's a beautiful <laughs> poem that I just wrote. Right, that is, yeah. Very good rhyme. <laughs> it's a really just gorgeous couplet. <laughs> um, 
no, I, I think that that, it definitely, it built a thicker skin and sort of made me, because it, you know, if you're, if you're the one making jokes, then you're kind of ahead of the curve. You're kind of ahead of being made fun of. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, was your sister, what did your sister do? So she works at, um, she works at a school in New York. She does uh, tech support and she is now applying to law school. So oh, look at that. Uh, yeah. Did she have a similar ex- uh, experience where did she always want to move in New York or um, was that something in college, something triggered in her? And she's like, you know what? I'm going to go to New York. Sorry, mom and dad. I don't want to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely, I think she, she was like, I just need, you know, I, I need a different sort of pace of life. Cause she did. I mean, she graduated in, she graduated college in, um, 2012 which you know was one of the worst years to get any anything Yeah, yeah yeah and so she you know she like moved back to Kentucky for a little bit and then finally she was like I don't I I want to move out <laughs> it was like I would like to leave um and so you know she's in New York she's killing it and she yeah I, I think that she definitely has always wanted to end up there and she yeah and she always she sort of what you know like growing up she kind of went back and forth between like do I want to pursue law do I not want to pursue law and now I think that the will they or won't they is going to be a will yeah will they yeah now now that now that she's had some time to obviously move back to Kentucky and kind of go back out there and have this other job in between and stuff Cool. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Um, so, fast forwarding again to where we just were. Um, after you graduate college, you said you started writing for various publications. What were those? Yeah, so I was writing for uh, Shouts and Murmurs in the New Yorker, and I was writing for McSweeney's, and then I was. And also those are writing... the two that you referenced in trying to yes. get better at comedy. So, how, did you? Um, how was that kind of going full circle with your inspiration to end up working and writing for there? I mean, it was, it was really like, it felt very surreal, you know, it felt very um, wonderful to be, I don't know, on the same places that I was constantly studying. And then it also, then I was like, Oh, is someone out there studying my stuff? And then I was like, Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's good. Um, but yeah, so I was writing for those two places and I also wrote a little bit for GQ. Um, and I wrote for, I've written pieces for the Washington Post and, um, an essay for the New York Times. Uh, yeah. So just kind of all over, uh, what was it right, like writing for Shouts and Rumors and for people who are unfamiliar, um, can you let us know what Shouts and Rumors and the Daily Shouts are and such for the New Yorker? Yeah. So, uh, Shouts in the New Yorker, that's their, uh, comedy and humor section. And so that's where, you know, I was, the pieces that I was studying were, you know, about like politics, about sort of the everyday, (laughs) you know, just, uh, it was, a they were, they're largely about just like something simple that you just like kind of. What, what, well, what I like to do is kind of make sure that the joke can be in the headline as well. So you kind of like know what you're diving into. And then that sort of expands itself into a full piece. And so, I mean, it might be easier if I give an example. So the first piece that I wrote for the uh, uh, for Daily Shouts in The New Yorker was a piece called Ordering Lunch for the Office of Greek Tragedy. Um, which is basically, so when I was in college and I, and I started writing for shouts when, uh, I was a senior in college. Um, and so the, which is very cool, by the way, I just processed what you said for that. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's not, it's not every day, any, you know, college kids writing for the New Yorker. So very cool. Thank you. (laughs) Um, yeah, it was very exciting. Um, it was very exciting to like celebrate that while in a dorm. (laughs) So, well, it was, the inspiration for it was that 
um, you know, my group of friends, we were ordering dinner and we decided to all order from one place. And then I don't know what kind of short stick I drew, but I ended up having to be the one to kind of like get the order together, which was just a nightmare. <laughs> Simply the worst experience of my life. Nothing is worse than that. Because, you know, that that night I was just fielding calls from everyone because another issue is that we weren't together as a group. We were going to meet up to have the dinner. Um, and so I was just fielding calls being like, if it comes with rice, then I want this on the side. But if it doesn't come with that, then I want the man to do a dance. And, you know, like it was just so <laughs> it was so many things. And so, you know, I wrote that out that night. I wrote that out as like a Greek tragedy. And then I, and then I put it in an office because I was like, where, where do people who read the New Yorker work? Just in an everyday office. <laughs> That's good. Um, and a lot of your stuff on the New Yorker too is, and your very, very funny Twitter feed. I actually had a good laugh uh, going through it the other day. Um, is obviously about politics and stuff. Uh, were yeah. you always a political person or has recent um events is that the word to use maybe not yeah. events. uh <laughs> kind of turned that, you onto that i think that we're at a point where there's it's not really an option to not be political and i think that kind of everything we do now is very political um i would say that my interest in politics and writing like political satire and political humor kind of did start more when it was like every single day there was just like some kind of bombshell report and that was sort of starting end of 2016 and then all of 2017 until projected i don't know a thousand years from right. now <laughs> so um so that's kind of when because you know i would i have a i have this sort of terrible condition in which i don't sleep ever and so i would wake up super early in the morning and just read the news um which is also something that no one should do yeah yeah i've had to turn myself off from that typically like for a while there whenever i'd wake up i would go straight to twitter and straight to the new york times and look and then feel awful for the next uh several hours <laughs> but I've, I've had to know. i've had to exactly. kind of wean myself off and slowly get through the day now you're coming up in a in an age of comedians where obviously social media has been around for a while but um i feel like right now comedians who are getting jobs as stand-ups or as writers are really masters of the twitterverse and that's kind of where um a lot of like crafting of uh your style and, and humor is born um mm -hmm. you know i think you were on you did some bits on unsent right on the comedy central unsent yes. uh and going through that list of people like i know brandon wardell did some of that so a lot of young co comedians like get their start doing that and do you think that's a result of just activity on social media and you're able to do stand-up quote-unquote stand-up like daily hourly versus having to wait a week or two at a time to get to gigs and open mics and stuff like that yeah i mean i think that social media is like it's so um it's so useful for comedy because i mean it's useful on a, on a lot of different levels like yeah obviously gigs and uh shows like those are very accessible through social media um but it's also very useful just like logistically for a comedy writer because you have a set amount of characters and you have to like make something funny in that set amount of characters and that's i don't know that's that to me is i think a really great tool and it's also the flip side is that you know you can read someone's twitter and then see what their joke writing style is sure which is super interesting and then from there it is like you know they're very accessible to you and you right. can reach out you know you can reach out to anyone on twitter and you can offer them a gig or you can you know you can um you can like recommend them to a show or something like that right yeah i've i've been doing a decent amount of twitter reach out for getting people onto this podcast actually yeah just yeah. sliding into DMs all over the place. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's how it's. Listen, that's how it's done. <laughs> um, Twitter did, is the new LinkedIn. It is. I actually, I, I do agree with that. That's 
I 100% on that, especially yeah. in like the entertainment world. It's much easier to get a hold of someone world. there, uh, especially if they're reactive. Like sometimes if I know, you know, if I'm trying to get a hold of someone, I'll wait till I see them starting to reply to people on Twitter and then like copy and paste this thing I had written down. I'm like, okay, they're on right now. So maybe they're replying to things. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. No, yeah, I think that the- Twitter has been very useful for comedy writers and journalists. Right. Journalists specifically, um, I think it's a lot easier for people to keep up with the news. Maybe too easy, right, at this point? Yeah, I mean, too easy. Definitely too easy. (laughs) But also, listen, we gotta know. Right, yeah, we do have to know. I mean, putting your head in a hole is, I read, I was also not good. Um, What is, uh, what were your feelings on the 140 to 280 character jump then? Do you have strong Um, opinions? Here's the thing. (laughs) So, yes. I do think that 140 characters does really like it makes you sort of precious about your words. Sure. In a way that I think is very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of especially with joke writing, you know, to have a setup and a payoff in that little amount of characters. Right. I think is a really like that. That's like a craft, you know, that's a craft that like that, you know, people like Megan Amram are uh-huh. just like pros at man megan amram yeah. her profile picture gets me every single time Although, has yeah she, has she changed i think it? i think that's from college and megan yeah, yeah has she ever changed it with like her face down and all the makeup i'm like every time i see it i laugh it's so good um it's really good um and and on that too i always kind of joke that whenever there's a big sort of story that happens whether it's um you know trump tweets out something completely bizarre uh, or if there's some new story that broke that I always like Twitter because in particular comedians, um, it's like their ch- time to shine. It's it, that's when I'm like, man, people are very, very funny when they're able to come up with like something this witty, uh, this quickly and like in response to a news story. Um, do you think that's good? Is that helpful for the, the comedy world that they're kind of expected to have a response to things like that? Um, I think that it's, Sometimes I do have to sort of actively tell myself, like, am I contributing something to this discourse or am I doing something that's like not, I mean, none of it's useful, but (laughs) am I doing something, am I writing something that might actively harm someone? And so on that end, I think that, you know, a lot of people are because the news cycle is so fast because everything every single news piece that comes out is like, like, a, I mean, Trump campaign guy is in jail, you know, sure, like, right. Metaphor, yeah. everything that comes out yeah. is so intense that I think that, you know, that is a time for a lot of comedy writers to be like, I can make a joke here. And because it's topical, get like a lot of, get a lot of likes and retweets and things like that. And I think that like, that is kind of, that can be, harmful when it comes to like more sensitive topics or when it comes to something that you know when it comes to like an experience that you don't have or when it comes to representing like a group of people you know just I think that it it's it's good and bad I think it's good when somebody has a reaction that's useful for the discourse and also funny like that's amazing but I do think that more people should like I, I an example of this is um charlottesville when that was happening you know there were a lot of people who were tweeting about like the tiki torches and the tiki torches but you know there were a lot of people and a lot of white comedy people on twitter sort of talking about how sort of making jokes about like oh like salt is the spiciest thing that a white person can have you know just like jokes like that that were like that's not that's kind of not the problem or like calling these tiki torch people virgins you know like that's not that's not useful and I remember a lot of people were you know like retweeting their own jokes about it and that's something where it's like are you like what are you doing that you find particularly useful right now? You know, this is like a very sad situation that, I mean, obviously anyone should be able to joke about anything, but what, 
like it is your voice necessary here right it's like that's not the same as trump staring into the eclipse three times in yeah, 10 minutes exactly it's sure. just not the same you know like people were seriously injured and it was it was a white supremacist rally and so yeah which is nuts and so it is very much like you have to reflect and before you hit send because listen it there's a there's time between you thinking of a hot <laughs> take right and hitting send there's some time to think about whether you should actually hit send do you think not to completely shift or keep going down tone wise but uh do you think there's white privilege in comedy uh yeah yeah i think there's a lot and do you think it's reflected in things like that where they think it's okay to joke about um joking about yeah. a white supremacist rally because obviously it doesn't affect a white comedian like it would you like it obviously yeah i mean you know it's it is sort of that thing that i was talking about earlier which was a big issue in my high school was we're too smart we're too funny we're too smug to to be racist you know not only that but that coupled with a sense of self-importance and a sense of you know everyone should listen to me um yeah i think that the those kind of those things those factors do amount to like a pretty significant sense of white privilege when it comes to comedy and you know there's white privilege in every single field but i do think that you know comedy in particular has always sort of been a a very white industry uh do you find as you're writing jokes, um, do you try and actively sort of combat that by making sure you're giving perspective of, um, you know, not only as a woman, but as uh, a brown person in, in comedy and in the States? Because obviously there's not that many, right? I mean, there's a handful. Yeah. I don't know. I was talking to someone about this, not necessarily about Twitter, but about, you know, something that... Oh, this, yeah, just to be in general, just comedy in general. Yeah, comedy in general. I when I'm writing a humor piece, I do try, especially if it's like a sociopolitical piece, I try to ask myself, whose side am I taking? What power dynamic am I upholding? And am I making fun of the oppressor? Okay. So those are kind of the things that I go through. So to me, I feel very comfortable making fun of white men, especially during the Me Too movement. I feel very, very comfortable doing that because, you know, what? why do we have the Me Too movement? Right. Um, I, I guess I, I add white in there because there's a lot of, um, obviously there's, it, you can't have one without the other. It's so, everything is so racialized, you know? Um, and everything, you know, there have been, cases of you know women of color being abused by white men that we hear less about you know mm -hmm. yeah 100% so yeah th those are the things that I try to think about is um as I you know write a comedy piece I try to be like is this am I punching down or am I punching up you know it's interesting because like you know I I always think about, and she got rightfully so slammed by so many comedy writers for this comment. But when Roseanne was like, "You never make fun of the most powerful person," right? right. You always make fun. Right? Yeah. yeah, I was like, "No, that's that's the point of comedy. You only make fun of the most powerful person." Yeah, that, I mean, that's literally the point of like the Comedy Central roast, right? They are making fun of the most famous person on that stage for the most part, and things like exactly. that. Exactly. I mean that, and also just if we're looking historically like a court jester you know like right what is, sure <laughs> that's just like the very very basis of comedy is always to make fun of someone in power right and if you're not doing that then what's the point right yeah exactly so it, that's sort of what i i try to do and i think that you know coming from a woman of color mm -hmm. i i feel like i'm able to also you know, call out an intersection of oppression. As you've been joined, I mean, you jumped into two TV shows now, like very pretty quickly after you've graduated college, correct? Yeah. 
or re- yeah, very quickly after graduated college. Um, what has that been like? Have you has you have you already seen like a change of tone in Hollywood or in writing or in the office? Um, Absolutely. Because you jumped in right before Me Too, and obviously we're now like in Me Too. So have you already seen a cultural shift um, as a result of what what a year maybe or so of the Me Too yeah. movement? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I've seen such a huge shift. Also, I mean, while that was happening, I was in a writer's room that, you know, we talked about every single thing that was going on. There was not only a shift, but also there was now like a a platform where women could share their experiences. And it was like, not expected in the office or in the workplace, but you know, there was a place where you could just do it, where you could be like, yeah, no, this isn't surprising to me because here's what I've been through before, you know? So it was, I think, a good place for, I think that, yeah, there was definitely a huge shift. And there was definitely, because, you know, so many people in the entertainment world, you know, it started with Weinstein, but it came down to so many people in the entertainment world, comedians. And it's still coming down on so many people in the entertainment world. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. And so it was, it was interesting because, you know, you'll come across a name that, you know, you know, or that your friends are friends with. And that was like a, a really interesting thing to think about is like, what do you do when your friends, friends or when your friends are called out for something like this and it was and so that was like a thing that was a huge topic that i think we discussed a lot right and especially since um you know i think for you as a comedian there's obviously uh, i mean obviously i don't know your relationship with these people but there's been so many comedians who have been um what is the word not fallen victim to because that is obviously the incorrect word uh being I guess called out right for for their actions. Yeah, um, a lot of comedians have fallen into that circle. I guess uh, was that something that in particular came up a lot when you were writing? Um, like, did com- whenever a comedian um, story broke, was that the bigger topic in the room versus if it had been a non-comedian oh, yeah, or non-stand up? Yeah, because you know the comedy world in general it is very uh, connected. Mm-hmm. So there, it, whenever it was a comedian, we always there were always people who knew at least two degree separation. Right. You know? Right. And so that was, it was definitely way more talked about because then it was like, Oh, like, did my friend know about this? Who knew about this? And you know, there were a lot that were also part of like this whisper network. Right. That it was very unsurprising that they were called out. And and that, yeah, I think that's as someone who is not in the entertainment industry, um, the whole whisper network sort of thing, I think is the hardest for people to sort of grasp as to, um, cause I think to me, that's what, that is what makes it very complex. Right. And where people who don't understand that, you know, women felt like they had to keep secrets because they were going to get their careers ruined. Right. And then people say, well, well, why don't they just say something? And that's the most complex part, but, um, I think is the most, um, something that people need to grasp onto and understand like how power dynamics work, right. More than other parts. Cause that's not an easy thing to do. Obviously if you know something's or not you personally, but if someone knows something's bad's happening to their friend, uh, they obviously want to say something, but there's so many factors, right. That make it complicated. And it's, and it's a tough industry and the people who are in power are, you know, largely white men. And it's, yeah, it's, I mean, we saw just, horrific things by Harvey Weinstein and that's that's still sort of the dynamic in entertainment it's definitely now it's being exposed more and more which is great but um but yeah I mean it's definitely still it's there is still constantly a fear that if you speak up about something that's happened to you if you speak up about you know verbal abuse or harassment in the workplace and it's just you're making a big deal out of nothing you know it's all of those things that there's a reason that it's sort of a cliche on a positive side at least you do see it it, the tides are shifting for a positive way correct yeah i mean at the very least it's that you know women are coming forward right at the very very least and because of 
you know, social media, they're immediately able to get support from other women. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a a ton of support. Yeah. And so then, you know, it's through social media, through so many things that so many outlets that women are able to, um, to like get together in solidarity and talk to each other about their experiences, you know, things like that. See, social media does good things also. Keeps people connected in the good way and the positive way. It's good. Exactly. Do you have any, uh, any words of wisdom or words of advice for fellow, um, fellow children of immigrants who are acting like third generation immigrants where they want to break away from the mold a little bit and, and follow a path that maybe was not set for them at a young age? Acting like a first generation pursuing the dreams of a third generation. There we go. I like that too. That's very good. <laughs> You're kind of venturing on your own there, you know? And maybe you don't have the support immediately of your family, but follow in like the good that they've done mm-hmm. in establishing themselves and in, you know, fighting for having their voices heard. Um, so Broti, where can people find you, find your writing, find your tweets, all that sort of stuff online? So my Twitter handle is at Broti Gupta, which is B-R-O-T-I-G-U-P-T-A. Check it out. Had a tweet about Drake that blew up. To be totally honest, I didn't listen to the Drake song or the Pusha T song. Oh, so there we go. So, it was... <laughs> yeah, the Pusha T song was pretty savage. Like, I'm a fan of hip hop, uh, and when I'm listening to it, I'm like, "Damn, yeah, Pusha, that was well, like pretty gnarly." What you said? <laughs> I know. You said. I eventually got around to listening to it, but I did this thing where, like, my my friend called me out on it, and I was like, "Yes." That is exactly what I did, where I just like got onto Twitter, read three mediocre jokes about it. And then I was like, I get the gist of this news. I'll make a joke about it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then good. it blew up. And then I was like, I got to listen to these songs now. <laughs> listen, if you Google me, there's no other Brothy Gupta. So there there's go. not a lot that I can get away with. <laughs> so so your, your SEO is fantastic then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for sitting down the chat. That was a really fun talk. We got a whole bunch of topics there. I'm glad. Yeah, thank you so much. This was super fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. You too.